Um, the talk today is about tshuva. And I think there's really two ways to look at tshuva. You know, we have, what's the most famous book or the most comprehensive book on tshuva ever written? It was a book written in the 13th century, so 700 years ago, a book called Share Tshuva, which means the gates of tshuva. Now, this book is a comprehensive guide to tshuva. And you open it, and the first section tells you that tshuva is comprised of 20 components. There's 20 different aspects of tshuva. And then he goes and talk about, well, why would someone do tshuva? And he says, there's six different reasons why someone would do tshuva. And then he says, well, what are we doing tshuva for? And there's 10 levels of mitzvos or averos that we need to fix. And it's a very detailed, very complex. There's a lot of details, and it's, I think, very cumbersome, a little bit overwhelming, complicated. That's one vantage point of tshuva. However, a few weeks ago in the parasha, we read a very famous pasuk, a very famous verse. Ki ha-mitzvah hazos asher The pasuk says that the mitzvah that I command you today, it's not so distant from you, it's not so hard, it's not so easy, it's, not so, it's, it's very easy, it's eminently doable, it's in your mouth, it's so very easy to do. So which, which mitzvah is it referring to? So Rashi says it's referring to Torah. The Ramban, he says that it's talking about tshuva, repentance. Tshuva is a mitzvah that is so easily doable. It's right there. It's in our hands. It's in our mouth. It's in our hearts to fulfill it. I want to focus on that aspect. The part where tshuva is easy. Tshuva is accessible. Tshuva is not so cumbersome. Tshuva is not so hard. Tshuva is good. There's, it's a benefit for us. We benefit because we can do tshuva and uh, the Almighty set it up in a way that it's just a boon for humanity, for the Jewish people. It's just for our goodness. And that, I think, is a whole different spin in Yom Kippur. You know, Yom Kippur is the festival of tshuva. And a lot of people, they say, oh gosh, Yom Kippur, you gotta fast. You're in shul the whole time. Everyone's cranky. It's so long. You take the book, the machser, and say, okay, we're up to page 212. It feels like we've been here forever. And we only have to get up to 855. And that's, and that's like, an attitude that I certainly had for Yom Kippur growing up. But I want to kind of show how it's so positive. I want to try to flip flip it on its head. Let's try to say, oh gosh, we already used up 212 pages. I can't believe we, all we have is 600 pages left to go. Let's, let's try to see what, that whole other side of tshuva and of Yom Kippur that'll make us more eager and more excited and more capable of maximizing it. So I want to start with tshuva in general. And I want to introduce it with a debate that occurred about uh, 1,800 years ago. And uh, the most powerful person in the world at the time, he was someone by the name of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, which basically all the world was under his rule. The most powerful person in the world. He puts Trump in his pocket. And he was good friends with the greatest rabbi of the time. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, called Rebbe or Rabbeinu Akadosh. He was the one who was the architect of the Mishnah. And they had a, they, they were, they were chavrusas. They would study all, all time together and they would also debate. And the Talmud brings us one very interesting debate that they had. And Antoninus tells Rebbe, I have a solution to all your problems. We know Jews believe that you do mitzvos, you get reward. You do averos. If you reject and disobey God, you get punished. That's what we believe. 
says Antoninus, I have a solution. I'll solve all your problems. Why? Well, we know that the Almighty does not punish us while we're here. Right? While our body and our soul, while our guf and our shama are fused together, we don't get punished. So when do we get punished? After we die. After the body is separated, body is put in the ground, and the soul goes up to heaven. I have a brilliant solution, says Antoninus. You know what we're going to do? After someone dies, and the Almighty says, well, din v'cheshbon, everything you did, you got to pay an accounting for. I, let me tell you what you, what you could tell God. Tell him, listen, the body will say, look at me. I'm like a rock. I'm totally useless. I'm sitting in the grave here doing nothing. I can't, can't move at all. Obviously, it wasn't me that sinned. And the soul, well, the soul also has a perspective. The soul can say, look at me. I'm flying like a bird. Ever since we've separated, I'm totally useless. So obviously, it wasn't me that sinned. So the, the Almighty wants to go to the, the body and say, body, you sinned. The body says, no, it wasn't me. And the soul, you sinned. The soul say, well, it wasn't me. And therefore, there's no way the Almighty could punish us. Brilliant loophole. What a suggestion. So Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi responds, and he gives him a parable, a story. He says, suppose you had a king, and the king had a lovely orchard replete with the most luscious and delicious fruits, and you really wanted it to be guarded. So he takes two guards. One of them is a blind guard, and one of them is lame. The blind one can't see, the lame one can't walk. And he says, you two, you sit here, and you guard the orchard. Make sure nothing happens to it. Make sure no one steals any of the fruits. Fine, they're sitting there for a little bit. And the lame, poor guy, he can't walk around, but he sees, and he sees all the luscious fruits. And he says to the uh, blind partner, I see these amazing, delicious, luscious, delectable fruits. I want to go partake in it, but I can't get there. So you know what? Why don't you give me a piggyback ride? I'll climb on your back, and then you'll direct me where we need to go. So that's what they did. So the, so the lame... The lame guard, he climbs up onto the back of the blind one, and he directs him, make a left, make a right, watch out for the branch. And eventually, oh, they grab some fruits, they start eating. They finish what they eat, they eat some more, and before you know it, they decimated the whole orchard, they consumed all the fruits. And they're sitting there just pondering, and the king comes back. And the king tells him, where are my fruits? So the lame guard says, look at me, I'm on the floor. I, there's, no, I can't, there's no way to reach the trees. Obviously, it wasn't me that ate the fruits. And the blind guard, well, the blind guard tells the king, I'm blind. I would walk, I would walk into, I'm not walking anywhere. Obviously, it wasn't me. So what the king did, the king realized, of course, what happened. The king takes the lame guard and takes the blind guard and, and once again makes a piggyback ride. And he says, you know what? I'm going to judge you as one. You're not two distinct entities. You'll be judged as one. So too, says Rabbi Judah the prince, says Rabbi Judah Nasi, in the future, the Almighty is going to take the goof, take the body, and take the soul, and bring it back together, and judge them as one. That's a very interesting debate, but how is this related to tshuva? Well, first of all, as an aside, uh, according to this Gemara, which, by the way, if you're interested, is in Sanhedrin on page 91, on the bottom of A, going to the top of B, this Gemara says very clearly that the Almighty judges us after Tchiasamesim, after the body and soul are reunited. But put that aside. But what is that? I think this gives us a very powerful picture of what it's like 
to disobey God. Suppose you had these guards and they were supposed to watch the fruits and they didn't. Is there any way they could regurgitate those fruits and put them back on the tree? Is there any way they could fix what they did? If you consume the fruits, it's irretrievable. So what the Gemara is telling us is that really if you disobey God, you're consuming something that was was there and is gone. And there's no way to bring it back. You you, you cannot fix it, really. That's the way it it ought to be. The fruit's consumed, you can't get it back. The Mishnah tells us when someone does an Avera, someone sins, someone transgresses against God, someone disobeys the king's command, they create an angel, a prosecuting angel that's going to attack them. It's real. It's tangible. It's palpable. Once the fruit has been consumed, it cannot be brought back to life. Once the angel is created, it's indestructible. How can we possibly repent? How could these two guards, how could they undo what they did? So I think this this kind of shows us the first bonanza of repentance. Repentance is something supernatural. It's, It's out of this world. In our world, once something is done, it cannot be undone. But what tshuva does, tshuva, the Gemara tells us, it undoes the act, as if the act never happened. Voila, these people did shuva, and the fruits are back on the tree. Well, how's that possible? It's magical. Hence, the Gemara tells us that there are seven things that were created before the world was created. It's a Gemara in Psachim, on page 54. There's seven things that were created before the world was created. And along the list, the second item on the list is tshuva. And all the commentaries say, why does tshuva created before the world was created? And the answer is because it doesn't conform to the rules of our universe. In our world, you cannot undo what you did. Tshuva is a little bit like time travel. Suppose those two guards, they wanted to do tshuva. They, whatever tshuva it is, they press the button and the trees are once again laden with fruit. And the angel that they created with their sin was never created. It's time travel. It doesn't exist from our world. And I think just the reason why we're not so impressed with tshuva is because we don't realize the effects of our actions. And comes along tshuva, and it's just a benefit that God gives to us. I will allow you to time travel, to undo it, to, to create a reality that what happened actually never did happen. And I think that's just the point number one. We have to recognize how powerful a tool we have here. Now, how does it work? So there's another important point here. The Rambam tells us that the mechanics of tshuva is that we can change ourselves. So back to our example. If you have the two guards who disobey the king's orders. Well, those guards disobeyed the king's orders. The the orchard next door, they didn't disobey anything. If somehow these people could be transmogrified into their neighbors, 
if somehow they could change who they are and change their reality and change their identity and change their social security number and their name, well, then that's not them. I'm not guilty. Says the Rambam, when someone does tshuva, they say to God, yes, a previous iteration of me sinned, but not me. I'm a different person. I'm a different person. This current iteration of me didn't sin and judge me the way I am today. So, for example, you know, the Ramam tells us that when someone does tshuva, they should change their name. So if the name was Yaakov, like my name is, maybe their name could be now, uh, I don't know, Shmuel. I'm not planning on doing that, by the way. But that's an example. Why? To show they're a different person. Now, imagine someone committed a crime. And the crime has a maximum sentence of 50 years in prison. Could you imagine going over to the judge and say, listen, judge, I actually applied for a name change and I committed to never do this again. And I really apologize. And I'm willing to confess publicly about what I did. Can we just let this off? Does that work at all in our, it doesn't work at all in our world. Shuva is from a different world. And I think it's important for us to just, just, just think about that for a second. What an amazing benefit we have. And I want to take a little bit as an aside on this particular point. The Gemara tells us that if you forgive your fellow, God will forgive you. It's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. If someone forgives, someone's uh, friend or partner or spouse or colleague or whatever did something bad to them and they're able to forgive them, God will forgive the person who forgives. And I think on a very deep level, This makes a lot of sense. When someone comes to God and says, forgive me, what they're saying is, I believe in the concept of truth. I believe it's possible for a person to change. If you really believe it's possible for a person to change, then when someone else comes to you and says, I changed, you'll accept that. You'll forgive them. If I am unwilling to be flexible with my friend, if I'm unwilling to say, yes, I believe that you're a different person and you changed... Oh, I don't believe people can change? Then I'm, how can I go over to God and say, I changed? Well, if you don't believe people could change, you don't believe your neighbor could change, how do you believe that you can change? So that's just the idea of tshuva. And I want to kind of go through a series of these benefits that we have uh, in tshuva in general, and in particular specifically, and try to make it much more of an exciting and uh, appealing and achievable pursuit so what does tshuva do? So we said tshuva cleanses someone from sins and it undoes and it time travels and it changes the reality of the past. But tshuva is actually more than that. The Pasuk we read this past week in Shul, Shuva Yisrael, return Yisrael, Jewish people, Ad Hashem Elokecho, until Hashem, your God. What this means is that tshuva not only undoes a bad deed, it creates closeness between the Jew and God. And thus, tshuva really is not just one element of Jewish living. Tshuva really is a microcosm of all of Torah, all of mitzvos. If you had to say in one line, what's the objective of mitzvos? What's the goal of mitzvos? It's to create closeness between God and us, between our creator and us. That's the goal of mitzvos. Shuva Yisrael ad Hashem 
return the Jewish people to Hashem, it's a way to fulfill really all of mitzvahs, which is a very powerful thing. The Balaturim, one of the commentaries in the Torah, he says something astonishing. He says that tshuva is equal to all 613 mitzvahs combined. You put on a scale 613 mitzvahs, you put tshuva on the other side, and they're equal. And I think perhaps we can explain it like this. The Midrash tells us, it gives us an example. It says you have a person, a sailor, and the sailor was on the sea, was on the ship, and the ship was in very rocky uh, storm conditions. There was a gale, and the sailor fell off the ship, and now the sailor's drowning. And the captain of the ship, he takes a lifeline, he takes a rope, and he throws it to the sailor, to the man overboard, and the sailor grabs onto the lifeline and is pulled to safety. So too, says the Midrash, the Jewish people, or humanity, we are in a world where our soul is in peril. Our neshama could die. Because it's in a world that's very dangerous. It's like, it's like, it's, it's flailing about trying to stay afloat and not drown. That's what our soul is like. And the Almighty throws us Torah. The Almighty is the captain. Throws us Torah and throws us mitzvos. And we, all we need to do is hold on to the rope. All we need to do is to seize the lifeline and the Almighty will reel us in. And I think this is a very powerful muscle for a few reasons. First of all, the sailor. Where was the sailor initially? Before the sailor went overboard, the sailor was on top of the ship next to the captain. What it's telling us is that we were very distant from God right now. But that wasn't always the case. Originally, if you trace back our pedigree, where do we come from? We come from being very close to God. The Talmud tells us that our soul, when it's isolated, is the thing that's most similar to God. We're very, we originally were close. Now we're thrown into a distance. But when we're going back to God, when we're observing mitzvahs and, and, and making that connection, we're just going back home. We're going to the place where we're most comfortable. Part of the trick of the, of the Yetzirah is that he convinces us that the sea that we're drowning in is a place where we want to be. And we don't want to be on that ship. We don't want to be next to the God. That's, that's far away. The truth is, that's home. That's where we're, our most natural, most comfortable, most secure place to be is. And we, all we need to do is just get there. And the money says, I'm going to throw you a lifeline. I want to help you. I want to create the situation where it's, it's most possible for you to actually get here. The money's reaching out for us. Rabbi Yona, he accentuates this point, and he says, the Pasuk says, we read a few weeks ago as well, Vishavta ad Hashem alokecha. You, were t- you shall return to Hashem. So what does that mean? We need to do tshuva. Vishavta, you shall return. However, in a few verses later, a few psalms later, it says, Umal Hashem the Mari will cleanse us. So who's doing it? Is it us or God? Who's doing tshuva? Is it us or is it God? The answer is, is that we do what we need to do, 
but all the heavy lifting is done by God. The sailor who's drowning, all they need to do is to hold onto the rope. All they need to do is do tshuva, and all the hard work, leave that to leave that to God. You do your maximum. You just invest, and you don't worry. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they've done tshuva in the past, or they, they've even thought about tshuva in the past, they say, ah, I tried it last year, or I, it's it's not it's not so it's not so easy. I heard about how difficult it is. The truth is, all, it's very minimal what we need to do to have a degree, a modicum of tshuva. I think, you know, back to the example of the judge. Again, suppose you're about to face trial on a very severe crime. Think about it. You th- just think about it. Just think about it in your head. Like, you could maybe spend 50 or 60 years in prison, in jail. What's going to be with you? You're terrified. You try to hire the best lawyers. And you try to hire uh, the, the most clever defense. And you call up all your friends to write letters of recommendation for, for you for the judge. And you can't sleep at night. And then two weeks before the trial, uh, you get a call from the judge. And the judge tells you, oh, come, come meet me. So you say, okay. You go down to the courthouse you're terrifying, your knees are shaking. And he says, well, come to my office. And he sits you down and he gives you a drink. And he says, oh, come, I, I, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want to, let me help you craft a strategy for you to be acquitted. Now, obviously, you're the luckiest person in the world. The, the judge, the person who is going to determine your fate, is telling you all everything you need to do to be victorious. And you ask the judge... Why are you doing this for me? Why are you helping me? And he tells him, oh, you don't know this, but I'm your uncle. I love you. I want, I want to do everything I can that you should be successful. The Almighty is telling us, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. I'm going to give you tshuva. I'm going to create this reality that's, that's so out there t- to change the past. I'm going to throw you the life. I'm going to give you a whole week to think about it, the whole 10 days. This 10 days, I'm going I'm to say, just think about this for 10 days. And follow these steps and say these things and have these feelings. And that's all you need to do. You'll be victorious. This amazing benefit that we have for tshuva. Along these same lines, Yom Kippur, what was the first Yom Kippur? So, if you read in Shemos, the first Yom Kippur was... 80 days after the Chet Ha'edel, the sin of the golden calf. After the golden calf, the mighty says, I'm done with the Jewish people. I'm done. I'm going to destroy them. We'll start from scratch. And Moshe starts davening. Moshe starts praying. And the Almighty forgives them finally on Yom Kippur. Our sages tell us what that did is that it created a reality where Yom Kippur became a day most apt for forgiveness. It's the day that it's most likely that you'll be forgiven. And you know what? The Almighty says, we're going to have your judgment sealed. We're going to finalize your stature specifically on the day that the Almighty is most agreeable to forgiveness. 
Back to the judge. Suppose the judge says, I want to have the ruling on the day that I, I'm in the best mood. I'm the happiest. I had the, I, I, I'm, I'm in a very benevolent giving mood. That's the day where the judgment's going to be. Pretty incredible. And now, just a few more loopholes here. I want to make it easier. So, if someone, let's say, is wearing, um, someone wears tzitzis, right? So tzitzis, they are only on a garment that has four corners. So suppose you have a garment that has only three corners, and you put tzitzis on it. Do you get like three quarters reward? No, you don't get anything. It's, it's, it's four corners, and it's not three corners. Our sages tell us that even though tshuva is comprised of four elements, suppose someone only does three of them. You know what? They still get an element, a modicum of, of forgiveness. So I want to quickly go through what these four elements are, and, and I think our goal should be, let's try to do a little bit. Let, let, let's not sit on the sidelines and lose this opportunity. So first of all, there is a stopping the trans- transgression. Number two, regretting the transgression. Number three, commit to never do it again. And number four, vidui. And if you look at the Yom Kippur prayers, you'll notice that all these themes are already baked into the prayers. So tshuva can be done just by following the steps of Yom Kippur. And I think it's important for us to realize, yes, maybe we won't be able or we won't be willing, or the reality is perhaps that we're not going to be successful in doing it all perfectly, but even if we do a little bit, we do some of it, let's try to do whatever we can and nothing goes to waste. I think another point here, just again, to try to change our perspective on Yom Kippur, make a more positive thing. So uh, the Gemara tells us that you know, there's been many nations that have existed over, over our history. And most, if not all of them, are gone. The ones of yesteryear, they're not here anymore. How is it possible that we, a small ragtag nation, how is it that we're still here after so many thousands of years of persecution and dispersal and, and marginalization of all kinds? How is it possible that we're still here? Of all, of all nations, if you were to say 2,000 years ago, which nation is going to survive for 2,000 years? No one would put on their ballot box the Jewish people. Why are we still here? So our sages tell us that the way the Almighty works, he has a certain quota, a certain allotment of misdeeds allocated to every nation. Every nation has a certain amount of averos they could do without facing consequences. However, once they fill up their quota, they're gone. The Jewish people, we also have a quota of sins that would render us uh, unfixable, that would destroy us. But every year, we have 10 days dedicated towards reducing, perhaps even eliminating, and going back to zero. So in a sense, the only reason why we are here today, the only reason why we exist as a nation is because 
of tshuva, of repentance, and of Yom Kippur. If we didn't have this, we would probably be long gone into the annals of human history. And I think that's another uh, important idea to keep in mind with Yom Kippur is that this is really, it's so powerful, so beneficial for our nation. We benefit as a result of Yom Kippur. I want to say one more point. So Yom Kippur is, is 26 hours of fasting. And I know my son tells me, a couple of days ago, he told me, he's like, Abba, I'm starving. I have not eaten in two hours. I need food right now. And we have to go 26 hours without eating. And it makes us cranky and makes us miserable. I want to give that also a positive spin to it. On the day that we need more merits, more mitzvahs, more zechusim than any other day in the world, the Almighty says, you know what? I'm going to give you a mitzvah that every single second you get another mitzvah. Every single second that you, fu- that you fast, you're fulfilling a mitzvah in the Torah. It's a fulfillment of the mitzvah. Every single second. Moreover, we're told, lefum tzara agra. To the degree of pain in fulfilling a mitzvah is the degree of reward. So if I do it, the first 15 minutes of Yom Kippur's fasting, that's not, it's not, not, not a lot of reward for that. You, you're so stuffed, you don't want to eat. But as the fast progresses, progresses and your, your stomach is grumbling and you're starting to get woozy and cranky, every second, it's an incredible mitzvah. And I think we should cherish the fact that on the day where our behavior matters the most and our mitzvahs matter, matter the most, the Almighty gives us a mitzvah that's so easy to fulfill and there's such a great reward uh, to, that, that we have. And finally, I think the bottom line is on 10 days of tshuva, let's do something. Let's not sit on the sidelines and do nothing. The story goes, there was a king, very quickly, this won't take three minutes. There was a king uh, whose daughter, she, was, she wasn't living up to the standards of royalty and she would hang out with all the lowlifes. And the king was very disappointed. What are you going to do? And finally, she decides she wants to marry this guy, this, this bum, you know, this lowlife, this, this degenerate. What could he do? He tried to convince her, can't convince her. So she marries him. Finally get married. They move to a distant city. And sometime later, the king wants to go visit his daughter. So he sends a letter. I'm coming with my entourage all the dignitaries, we're going to come visit you. And we're going to come just to say hi, see how things are. Fine. Fine. Day comes, King travels, and he goes, and they have a whole banquet ready for him. The, the king's there, and he's sitting there, he's talking to his daughter, he's talking to his son-in-law. He's a little disappointed. Okay, but fine. Uh, afternoon comes, and the son-in-law, this degenerate, he gets up, and he leaves, and he goes away. And the king asks the daughter, where did he go? He's not coming back. And he says, well, see, this guy, my husband, he likes to drink alcohol. And uh, every day at a certain time, every afternoon, he goes and gets the drink. He needs to drink. He needs to drink. So the king tells him, tells her, fine. But on the day that the king comes, he's going to go out and drink the alcohol? 
Here, these are the these are the days that Karuhu Bihiyoso Karav. The Almighty is coming to us. He's close, according to the Torah. He's he's Lifnei Hashem Torah. He's close to us. Now is not the time for us to say, you know what? We have a way of doing things. This is not for us. We're gonna go live the, our regular lives. And in conclusion, uh, I heard a great line in the name of Rabbi Saul Salanter. Uh, he said, if Yom Kippur came every 70 years, Yom Kippur comes every year, right? but if, you, if Yom Kippur came every 70 years, then the way Jews would bless each other is you should merit to see Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is such a golden opportunity, and I think, I think it's important for us to realize how valuable it is even though it comes every year. So my hope is that everyone should have a meaningful and uplifting Yom Kippur. Do whatever we can to do tshuva. It's not so difficult. We can make it difficult if we want. It's easy. It's achievable. It's doable. And it's wonderful. And we should be appreciative of it. Everyone should have a kasiva v'chasimah tova, gemar and uh, thank you for having me.